And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it's Tuesday as we continue to kind of roll into the first real week of earnings. Uh, still on deck this week, uh, This week, of course, Tesla, Netflix coming up. So again, uh, some of the bigger kind of headline names are going to be hitting the markets here this week. Uh, of course, expectations so far remain high uh, for companies. And again, expectations of analysts continue to kind of you know, be on the positive side of the ledger here. And everybody's looking at these earnings, not so much for whether or not they're going to beat estimates because that's kind of baked into the cake, but what their forward outlook is. And uh, it's kind of interesting because just recently, Statista did an, uh, did a survey and, and basically kind of looked at, you know, all the CEOs of companies and analyzed reports. About 84% of CEOs are expecting a recession in 2024, uh, 0% of the Fed expects a recession in 2024. So, you know, quite an economy between the people that actually work in the economy versus those that try to control the economy. I uh, just thought that was kind of interesting. But nonetheless, uh, this is going to be kind of the, the push here over the course of the, of the next, next week, really two weeks. And once we get into next week and the week after, that is, of course, going to be where a, about 80% of the S&P 500 will have reported earnings. So again, we're going to have a really good picture about just how strong corporate earnings and profitability are here over the next couple of weeks. And of course, that's going to start kind of shaping out that picture for the end of the year. Now, expectations are still high. The Atlanta Fed right now is still expecting 5% growth here in the third quarter. Um, economic data still kind of continues to be strong here. Now, importantly, too, you know, we've had a, a numerous number of government programs. And this is going to be one of the kind of the interesting things as we move into 2024. There's, there is a case to be made for a soft landing, no recession scenario. And that is simply a function of these bills that we passed, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the, uh, the, I, the TJCA Act, and all these things that we passed during COVID. A lot of that money has not been spent yet from the government side. Those are project-based funding programs, and, and that requires things to be submitted and go through the approvals and all that. So it takes time, like these CHIP Act, like the CHIP Act in particular and the Inflation Reduction Act in particular. We're, there's a good bit of government spending that's going to show up in 2024, 2025 from those bills. Now, of course, this will depend on who gets elected. Now, you know, that funding could be cut. Right? Just because it's been passed in a bill and hasn't been spent yet doesn't mean, doesn't mean it can't be retracted. So you know, if you get a very conservative you know, uh, candidate for president uh, in 2024, he could come in and start to claw back some of that money. So again, though, but going into 2024, before we get to the election, there's going to be a good bit of this money kind of hitting the economy. And that's going to potentially keep you know, employment numbers elevated, keep the economic growth a bit more elevated than, than it might have been otherwise, but that's all a function of this government spending. Now, that government spending runs out in 2025, 2026. So the, the point I'm making is, is that there's a lot of sentiment that suggests, and again, you take a look at all of the, you know, the indicators, the leading economic index and uh, the, you know, inverted yield curves, et cetera, all suggest a recession coming in 2024. 
And, you know, those have a very strong predictive track record for a reason. But all I'm saying is just one thing to consider is that there is a lot of government spending billions upon billions of dollars committed to be spent within the economy through all these different spending bills that were passed over the last two years in particular um, that has yet to come into the economy. So just I just want to lay that out there for you just to consider um, that there's a potential that some of this no landing kind of stronger growth environment is possible as a function of government spending. Now, having said that, now let's back this up one second. A lot of that government spending now, government spending makes up about 15% of GDP. So uh, again, it's not a major driver versus the 70, near 70% that's driven by consumption. So just because there's going to be government spending coming in to fund these programs, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, create plants and products and those type of things, a, the, you know, the major driver of the economy still remains the consumer. Now, on the consumer side, it's a very different story. Higher interest rates are bleeding out their savings. Of course, they're, they're having a, a more difficult time making ends meet, etc. So again, there's, you know, there's the, the argument for a recession in 2024 still has a viable tend to it. But I just want to lay that out there that there is going to be a potential offset from all this government spending, just something to consider based on your own personal outlook. And again, I, don't, I can't predict that far out. I, I don't know what's going to happen in 2024. So all we can do is just kind of navigate markets for what they are right now and just kind of have a view about some of the risks that are out there. And we just want to be careful not to get too far into the recession camp because when everybody thinks a recession is going to occur, other things tend to happen. So again, just want to lay that out there. Now, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, yesterday, the market bounced right off that 20-day moving average. We talked about yesterday morning in particular that the market had come down. We, you know, we ran into resistance right here at the, <clears throat> at the uh, 50 and the 100-day moving average. So this cluster of resistance right here is that first real level of, of resistance that the markets have to make a move through if we're going to move to a higher level by the end of this year. Uh, right now, we just are kind of remaining trapped between this resistance uh, at that 50, 100-day moving average and the 20-day, which is short-term resistance, uh, right here where the market uh, had actually come down and settled over the last couple of days. Bounced off that nicely yesterday. Nice rally throughout the day yesterday. Good, strong buying all day long. That really was a good, a good buying opportunity, a, a, a really kind of a good setup for the markets, I should say, um, coming off that support. So, but again, we haven't gone anywhere. We're still compressing between these two levels of resistance and support. We've got to, the market's going to have to make a move one direction or the other here fairly soon. Now we can continue to kind of grind here. You know, we've done this before, where we stay in a fairly tight range for a period of time don't really make any move in one direction or the other, then the market makes its advance. Last time we broke to the downside. So we'll see what happens here, but from an investment perspective, we're just gonna be kind of wrestling between this, uh, these two kind of compressing levels of support and resistance, at least for now this morning. Futures are, are down a little bit. The S&P's down about 11 right now. And again, that can change as we get closer to the open. But, uh, you know, again, you know, we're just kind of keeping a watch on markets. Still concerns about what's happening overseas, of course, um, in Israel. 
And of, of course, as we start to kind of look into earnings uh, more and more, that's really what's going to be driving the market. So again, uh, while we're starting out a little bit on the weak side this morning, that can certainly turn around by midday as we kind of get into market action. Again, bets have been fairly positive right now on higher asset prices, particularly in those mega cap names, which are driving profit growth. So, you know, even with yesterday's news that we saw coming out really kind of across the board early in the day, markets really kind of shrugged that off and, 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 and rallied strongly during the day. So again, nothing too much to worry about right now. Still on a buy signal at this moment. Uh, we're getting a little bit overbought here short term, but not extreme just yet. So we still have some more room to move to the upside which again, this kind of this idea of having a consolidation here for a bit before we try to make a move higher into year end, certainly possible. And again, over the next week or so, as we start to wrap up the month, um, then after that, we get into stock buybacks and that window opens up, which will help provide some additional buying impetus as we get there. Again, uh, right now, just kind of trade the market for what it is. Watch that support level of the 20-day. If we break that, we, you know, we can certainly retest that 200-day moving average, as we said yesterday. So certainly some downside risk to be aware of. But again, for right now, everything seems to be uh, kind of okay here at the moment for the markets. That's what you need to know before the bell. When we come back, we're going to talk about unintended consequences and why investors underperform long-term. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So unintended consequences. This is, uh, you know, something that, you know, we talk, we, we talk indirectly about all the time. But it was kind of interesting because Bloomberg uh, penned a really great piece on this just recently and um, talking about, you know, there's only one true law of history, and that is the law of unintended consequences. In the early 1920s, the University of Chicago economist Frank Knight famously drew a distinction between calculable risk and unknowable uncertainty. He overlooked a third domain, unintendedness, which is what happens um, where what happens is not what is supposed to happen. And this is, you know, something that occurs all the time in the markets. As we talked about, you know, in 2022, everybody expected a recession and it didn't happen. Now, no one expects a recession. So, you know, you time to start going, well, what's going to happen here next? Right. So, you know, this is but this is the the issue. And you know, so the article mostly was focusing on on bond yields and uh, the impact of higher rates and talking about, you know, the kind of what caused inflation and, you know, what drove yields. And of course, you know, that's all from that monetary input. So as that monetary input fades, so will inflation, so will interest rates. And we're going through that process now. It's just going to take a little longer to get there. Um, but, it, but it is interesting because it also applies very much to investing. And, you know, if you take a look historically at investors and how investors behave, and again, I just want you to kind of think about this for a moment, because as we are talking about this in particular, you know, kind of think about how you think about things right now, whether it's interest rates or the markets or the economy, whatever it is. So I want you to think about, you know, 
what your views are in particular. Don't worry about mine, right? Just worry about yours for a second and say, okay, my view is on the economy, I think this. My view on interest rates is this. My view on the markets is this. So whatever that is, that's what it is. Now, why is it that investors underperform long-term? Uh, Dalbar did a really interesting study. I used to write a, a annual update on investing and, and the Dalbar research, which is really, they, they, do a great, they do a great job kind of surveying investors and those type of things. Um, but they came up with three reasons why investors underperform over time. And that is basically, first of all, they have no capital to invest. <laughs> so uh, that makes up 25% of the reason why investors underperform the market. The other 25% is that they have the capital, but they need it for something else, right? They're, they can't afford to invest it. They've got to, you know, pay for a car, pay for, you know, whatever. So the ca they have capital. It's just not getting invested. 50% of the reason is psychological factors. Now, you know, this is a function of unintended consequences. It's what we believe is going to happen that doesn't happen for one reason or the other. We're convinced that something is going to occur, and then it doesn't happen that way. And, you know, these, these psychological factors come in, in various forms, and, and, you know, we've gone through these before. But, you know, importantly, when you start talking about how investors behave and think about the things that you do as an investor. And this is, this is the, look, and, and everybody falls into this, by the way. You know, the psychological biases are what lead us to make these mistakes. So, so mistakes like loss aversion, right? Don't want to lose any money, so I don't invest, right? So the, the need to, to avoid loss. Now, this becomes the most prevalent when markets are in a decline. Markets are coming down. I know I, I own positions, whatever it is, markets down, markets coming down, markets coming down. I just get to the point I can't afford to lose any more money, so I sell everything, right? So this is what happens at the bottom of the market in, you know, 2008 or last year in October. Investors go, I just can't afford to lose any more money, so I sell everything. And then that's when the market takes off running. And they're going, I just, you know, I, I'm, you know, just, I, I, can't, I, you know, I can't get in now because I just sold everything and now the markets are going. So I'll have to wait for another opportunity to get in later. And then they wind up missing the market. But loss aversion is one of the big reasons why people, you know, fail to perform over time. Narrow framing. This is key for where we are right now, in particular, whether it's interest rates or inflation or the economy, whatever you, whatever you think. We make decisions about one part of the portfolio without considering the effects on the total portfolio. Anchoring. That's the process of remaining focused on what happened previously. And again, think about interest rates and inflation, right? We're talking about the 70s. And so we're focused on this. We're anchoring on what happened in the 70s, expecting that same thing to play out now in, in two very different economic environments. As a, as a function. Mental accounting is another big problem that we have as investors. That's, that's where you know, we separate the performance of an investment rather than looking at the performance of the total portfolio. Because again, if we're supposed to be running a diversified portfolio, it's not what one thing is doing versus the other. It's how is the total portfolio doing relative to its benchmark. And in a, in a diversified portfolio, they're not all supposed to be going up and down at the same time. That's not diversified. <laughs> that's correlated. 
in a diversified portfolio, you're supposed to have some stuff that's going down, some stuff that's going up, and then that's what balances out the risk over time. Lack of diversification comes right along with that. We believe we're diversified, but what we actually have is a big pool of correlated assets that all go up together and all go down together. Of course, the biggest things that we get into, of course, hurting, you know, just kind of falling in with whatever kind of the mainstream narrative is and doing that. Of course, that herd, just like anything else, if you've ever seen, you know, a, a herd of cattle or herd of, you know, you know, whatever, they're, they're heading one direction, then they'll t- cut and turn and go in another, another direction, right? Something spooks them. Markets do that all the time. You, you know, markets are heading one direction, all of a sudden they just stop and they move in another direction. But herding is one of the biggest problems for investors because we get trapped into that trend and we go, well, I've got to do what everybody else is doing, and that doesn't always work out well. So, again, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons psychologically, and, and we all do these things, that lead to underperformance over time. So it's important, though, to understand that all these, all these mental issues, these behavioral biases, right, are a function of unintended consequences. We think that, you know, we're doing this because something has changed in the markets, right? And the unintended consequence of that is that the market does something entirely different. We all load up on, you know, long tech stocks because that's what's running markets right now. And then something's going to change. The unintended consequence of something's going to happen that will cause that to change. You know, in 2021, Fang stocks were all the rage, right? In 2022, nobody wanted them, and now everybody wants them again. So there was a there were unintended consequences of these things have happened repeatedly over time. Right now, everybody thinks oil prices are going to go to the moon, right? We're going to have oil prices go to 150. You know, we had that same conversation back in 2020. Oil prices are supposed to go to 150. 2021, they went negative, right? Unintended consequences. So this is why it's so this is why it's very important not to get sucked into these big kind of overriding narratives in the markets. Um, you know, the biggest problems that investors have is the hurting effect and loss aversion. Those two really kind of work together. You know, those those two behaviors, they kind of compound investor mistakes over time because as markets rise, individuals think that the rise is inevitable and that it's just going to continue higher indefinitely. And just think about how we were back in June and July. Now, I know it's hard to remember that far back, but in June and July, markets are up 15% for the year, and this, this market was just going to keep going. There was nothing that was going to correct this market. And we were talking about, you know, back then, we said, hey, look, we're going to get a correction, you know, 7 to 10%, certainly normal in a normal year. And we had that correction. Now everybody thinks the market is going to go down, right? Just have to go lower from here. So again, it's that same type of psychological bias, hurting and loss aversion playing into that. And and again, these are the reasons why we continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again, because we get sucked into whatever the media is saying, and then we have to deal with those consequences later. So, you know, in 2023, the big story, of course, is the rise of interest rates. And... As interest rates go up, borrowing costs impede economic growth. That ultimately reduces, you know, corporate earnings. 
That's logical, right? But everybody believes it's different this time. And we know that by taking a look at the, at the market versus volatility. Markets are continuing to, to advance this year, holding up well. There's basically no rise in volatility to speak of. It's gone up a little bit, but not a whole lot. Still remains very suppressed. Nobody's really betting at this point on any type of a market crash or event that would occur from substantially higher interest rates. Even the Fed is at a no recession, as I said, no recession in their forecast right now, even though they've tightened monetary policy fairly dramatically. We also see the same thing in looking at valuations and interest rates. So interest rates have risen um, you know, pretty sharply this year. We're at 4.8%. We're up from 0.3%. So we've had a 4.5% increase in interest rates from the 2020 lows. And valuations have been rising. So in the same time frame that interest rates are going up, so are valuations. In other words, investors are willing to pay up for stocks in a higher interest rate environment when that really doesn't make sense. But that's where we are right now. Right? The question and what investors need to be calculating on is what are the unintended consequences that eventually comes about. We'll talk some more about this when we come back from the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so talking a little bit about unintended consequences the the issue is really whether or not we continue to kind of fall into these same patterns over time. And that's, you know, what we do. And so, you know, it was interesting because I posted this chart on Twitter uh, last week. And, and, and not surprisingly, there's always a lot of people that comment on, you know, things and kind of making their own assumptions about issues. But basically, this was a chart of the S&P 500 versus a ratio of valuations to the VIX. Uh, to the volatility index. So if you take valuations, divide it by the volatility index, you get this ratio. And whenever this ratio has been this elevated, you've normally had, you know, markets that, you know, have a correction, a bear market, you know, some type of event, you know, play out. And it's not surprising, right? You know, whenever you have high valuations and low volatility, everybody kind of gets into this very complacent moment where, you know, this is, you know, everything is perfect and, and nothing's going to change. But that's when those unintended consequences show up, right? The, the one thing we weren't banking on that happens and you know, Israel and, and Hamas right now is a good example of that, right? We weren't banking on that. You know, we're trying to get through, we're trying to get through one thing and then we got another thing pop up, right? We have Russia, Ukraine, and now we've got this, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's always something as my, my mom always says, but you know, it was interesting because the chart shows that when that ratio is elevated, the markets go through a correction. And, and pretty much every single time that you've been this elevated, you've had a more significant correction in the markets. 
except for 1994. Now, in 1994, we were just coming out of a recession in 1991. Markets were kind of on this tear. So, you know, you had some other events going on, though, right? You had Asian contagion. You had the Russian debt defaults. You had long-term capital management. A lot of other things in there that occurred, but the markets were just taking off because we had this whole dot-com thing going on. So it's not a perfect indicator, right? But more often than not, it's been a pretty good indication of excess complacency in the markets. But I thought it was interesting because, you know, not surprisingly, you get responses. And I got this response on Twitter from Thomas the Train, (laughs) which tells you something right there. Uh, 1994 and 2018 seem to be different with VIX at 152 and 199 respectively, followed by a rising S&P 500. It's not clear how reliable the indicator it is. So now I just want to go back to the indicator for just a second because, you know, it's interesting. You know, he picks out these two dates, 1994 and 2018, and says, oh, well, the indicator's not reliable because there were two times out of the multiple times it was right that, you know, it wasn't. So, you know, we can't really use it to predict anything. Well, you shouldn't use any indicator to predict anything, right? It's just, it's, it's a measure of risk and reward at, at the end of the day. But Thomas, the tank engine over there, it seemed to forgot about 2018 when you had the 20% decline from September to December from that high valuation. So really out of every reading that you've had of valuations and you know high valuations and low volatility only one didn't turn into something worse right it was just kind of a sloppy period for about a, a, you know about six eight months in the markets markets just went nowhere they didn't go down they just didn't go anywhere uh for quite a few months almost a year so again how reliable is it sure it's not a perfect indicator no indicator is but that sentiment, Thomas, the, Thomas, the old Thomas the Tank Engine over there, his sentiment is important because that's the attitude that we have in the markets right now of, you know, well, this time is different. This is where those unintended consequences repeatedly kind of show up over time. And, and right now we've got some clear evidence, right? Um, you take a look at the options market right now. Options are the hottest trade on Wall Street at the moment. Options and futures. Investors can't get enough of them. Been a huge surge in the number of options and futures contracts, 100 billion of them. Now, these are the most speculative assets in the markets because they have an expiration date. They expire at zero if you're on the wrong side of the trade. At least with the stock, you don't, you don't, unless the company goes bankrupt, you don't wind up at zero. Options wind up at zero. On the other hand, so you've got these super bullish bets on the markets, on equities. On the other hand, you have the most negative sentiment on bonds on record. Huge short position on bonds. This is why interest rates have been going up, because uh, institutions have been shorting bonds on the momentum trade. So when you have such a negative dichotomy between equity bullishness and bond bearishness, what is most likely going to be the next outcome, right? And right now the sentiment is is that interest rates can only go higher, stocks can only go higher. Well, wait a minute, interest rates and stocks can't go higher together. 
That just doesn't work. Interest rates impede economic growth, earnings, those type of things. They eat into profit margins. So that does that argument doesn't make sense. But see, that's the argument that we're getting in the markets right now. At some point, this will all reverse. It always will. And everybody will say, well, nobody saw that coming. Whatever causes that reversal will be, well, nobody saw that coming. But that's what is, is always that happens, right? You know, so we take a look at financial conditions as an example. Um, so this index is a, a financial co- a composite of bank lending standards, interest rates, and inflation. And whenever you have, I'm sorry, I said inflation. I meant the rate spread. So it's, it's a composite of financial conditions of, of bank lending standards, interest rates, and the spread between the interest rates and the neutral rate. Whenever that has been this elevated, you've always had a recession. But again, we're betting this time is different, right? It's the, and, and again, there's, and as I said at the beginning of the show, there's certainly some, a case that can be made for why the recession may be delayed because of all this government spending that's coming. But again, this is the problem of the market. The market is heavily betting on one outcome. So, you know, this is, so this is the challenge that we face. And, and again, I, I thought this was, you know, interesting because this article from Bloomberg was interesting because it's really talking about those that are hoping for a this time is different scenario, right? And, and so one must believe that the government and the Federal Reserve can control outcomes to limit financial crises, bear markets, and recessions. And it was interesting because in the unanticipated consequences of purposive social action, which was in the American Sociological Review in 1936, Robert Merton proposed five reasons why the best laid schemes of politicians and planners so often go awry. He laid out five rules or five five reasons, right? Partial knowledge is the paradox that when past experience is a sole guide to expectations on the assumption that certain past, present, and future acts are sufficiently alike to be grouped in the same category, those experiences are in fact different. Error is the too ready assumption that actions which have in the past led to the desired outcome will continue to do so. And what's interesting, we talk about the Fed their actions have never led to the desired outcome. But they keep doing the same thing over and over again. The, um, the imperious immediacy of interest is, is the instances where the actor's paramount concern with the foreseen immediate consequences excludes the consideration of further or other consequences of the same act. Basic values are the instances where there is no consideration of further consequences because of the felt necessity of certain actions and joined by certain fundamental values. The example Merton gave was Max Weber's Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, where deferred gratification had the unintended consequence of accumulating capital and ultimately eroding Calvinist values. 
self-defeating prophecy where the public predictions of future social developments are frequently not sustained precisely because the prediction has become a new element in the concrete situation. So that and basically, if all other things are equal and we, we believe that this time is the same, right? It ultimately becomes a self-defeating prophecy by actions. So the point is, is that everybody believes this time is different with the markets. Everybody believes it's different this time with the bond market. And maybe it is, right? But historically, the outcomes have never been positive in those beliefs. Bottom of the market in 2008, we believed the market was going to go to zero, and it didn't. In 2007, it was a Goldilocks economy and everything was perfect and there was no risk of a recession anywhere on the horizon. So, just something to think about. All right, we'll come back from the break, wrap up the show. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, this morning we're going to get uh, quite a bit of economic data out. The National Association of Home Builders uh, Cinnamon Index this morning. Um, also, the industrial production month over month. And importantly, um, we're going to retail sales. So retail sales uh, in September are expected to be up 0.3% versus 0.6% previously. Retail sales month over month, excluding auto and gas, um, is expected to be up 0.1 and 0.2 uh, versus 0.2 previously. Um, you know, it's interesting because with high interest rates, inflation elevated, you know, pandemics, uh, these pandemic savings starting to dwindle. You know, the, the American consumer continues to, you know, pre, spend pretty steadily here. I mean, it's, they've, they've been pretty resilient in the face of kind of what's been going on behind the scenes. And, and they've been, you know, tapping into credit cards, of course, and, and you know, finding, you know, methods to acquire more capital uh, to spend and, and keep the spending going. So today's retail sales report um you know, it's going to be important to watch because, you know, this is going to really kind of tell us what's going on. You know, Dollar General has been under a lot of pressure. Target, um, a lot of retailers, and even at the lower end, have been getting hit on stock prices because of concern. Staples uh, have been under pressure. Um, so, the, um, you know, so overall, when we kind of look at the balance sheet of 
consumers, it's believed that their balance sheet remains fairly strong, right? They have, they have plenty of excess savings. It's fine. And they can continue to kind of just, uh, you know, spend away going forward. But again, you know, when we look at these, the quote unquote retail sales balance or the retail balance sheet, it's a function that the top 10 to 20% of excess savings, the bottom 80% really don't. And, you know, they're, they are, there's definitely signs that they're having trouble making ends meet. Uh, the amount of credit that they're taking on is slowing down. And basically, they're running out of the ability to take on more and more credit. So today's report's going to be, you know, interesting to watch. You know, one of the things that's, that's, that's been really interesting in the retail sales reports this year, and particularly this summer, is that Americans have been ramping up spending on services, versus goods and you know they're splurging on travel dining out uh, sporting events and and you know this is kind of keeps going back to well you know they were locked down you know for a year and this is 2023 now lockdowns ended a year and a half ago so you know this whole kind of what they call revenge spending is is going to be approaching an end right it's like well, i was locked down so i'm just going to go live it up now and I'm going to spend $1,500 on a ticket to go see uh, Taylor Swift, right? So that's going to eventually kind of find its limits wherever that is. You know, I thought it was interesting. You know, Disney is, is trading at, you know, decade lows, and they're trying to raise prices on their tickets at their parks. Netflix is raising their prices. So... You know, as but again, that's not surprising, right? As consumers are want are willing to spend money, I have demand. So if I have demand, what am I going to do? I'm going to raise prices. I'm going to find that point of where I can't raise prices anymore, and then I have to basically cut prices. But I'm going to I'm going to push, and this is what companies are doing. So, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to watch today in terms of the retail sales number. If we start to see some cracks in the foundation of that spending. And particularly as we start to head into October, November, December, October, uh, second biggest holiday shopping day of the year is, is Halloween. So this whole everybody's buying 12 foot skeletons at, or 20 foot skeletons at Home Depot right now. So, you know, everybody's out spending money for the Halloween. And then you've got Thanksgiving in November. And then you've got Christmas then New Year's. And and then I've got my wife's birthday in there. Then you have Valentine's Day. This is just a terrible time of the year for being a you know, retail spender. But, you know, this is all going to come down ultimately to the job market. So if we take a look, you know, kind of historically at high borrowing cost, that is going to slow eventually the employment market. We haven't seen it yet so far in the data, right? Uh, well, depending on the day you look at it. the BLS report says that we've got very strong data. Um, but ADP, not so much. So it just depends on what report you're looking at. Job openings are declining. Wages are falling. Wages, wage growth has now fallen back to pre-pandemic levels. So that whole big surge in wages has gone away, which is interesting because now wage growth is declining and inflation is still hanging in there, which is going to put more pressure on individuals. And this is, this is an important point uh, about inflation as well. The Fed wants 2% inflation. That doesn't mean prices go down. You know, we've talked about this before. If, ga if, if gas 
is $4 a gallon in January and it's $4 a gallon the next January, that's 0% inflation. Price didn't go down. You just have no inflation. It didn't go up. The Fed wants 2% inflation, so they want gasoline not at $4 a gallon. They want it at $4.08 a gallon next year. Right? So that's the point we need to be thinking about. You see, prices aren't going to get cheaper. They're going to continue to get more expensive, but wage growth is declining. We're just going to grow inflation at a slower pace. Economists surveyed by Wall Street Journal, this, this is, a, I'm reading from an article from the Wall Street Journal. Economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal is expecting hiring to slow sharply next year. Though they are increasingly optimistic the U.S. can avoid a recession. The employment, unemployment rate remains historically low at 3.8%. But you're starting to see signs of strain emerge. And again, so we'll, we'll kind of pay attention to this. You know, if you take a look at consumer sentiment, that's been declining as of late. You know, there was a brief little spot there where, um, you know, in kind of April, May, June, consumer sentiment was improving because stock prices were going up, right? We talked about this, you know, rising asset prices lead to, you know, stronger consumer sentiment because they see their 401k plan and it's going up in value, so they have more money to spend, right? They feel better. Well, since July, asset prices have been falling, so a sentiment. But if you take a look at the index of expectations, that expectations fell below 80 in September, and that's a level that historically signaled a recession within the next year. But yet we have a lot of predictions right now that suggest no recession. See, it's, it's all very confusing. And this is why it's such a difficult bet saying that this is going to be this way for the next, you know, 24, 36 months. Trying to predict that far in the future is very difficult to do to get it right. This is why we pay so much attention to what the market is doing right now rather than what we think it's going to do, you know, in the future. Now, it doesn't mean you can't make bets where, you know, there are some outcomes that are fairly certain to happen. And you can certainly make a bet on that, you know, by buying very cheap value-based stocks that have strong earnings growth, those type of things. They may be depressed in price. That's a good opportunity, right? And that's going to take a long, longer time to mature. That's not going to meet you. Know, you buy it today. It's not going to immediately make you money. It's going to take a while. It may, may take two, three, four years before it makes you money. But that's going to make you more money than chasing things that are trading at all-time highs right now. So that's why you kind of have a little of both in your portfolio. But anyway, so today we have those retail sales report out this morning. Also, lots of earnings. Uh, more banks uh, today. Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, uh, Interactive Brokers Group, J.P. Hunt, which is transportation stock, uh, trucker. Lockheed Martin, uh, they've reported earnings this morning. Stock's up a little bit this morning on that. Uh, Johnson Johnson, Pinnacle Financial Partners, United Airlines. Um, as we get into the rest of this week, again, as I said before, we'll get into Netflix. We'll get into... Um, some of the other kind of the mega cap names uh, are coming in the next week. We're going to get Apple, Microsoft, and, and the rest of the crew. So um, anyway, it's just, you know, kind of pay attention to this. You know, this, this uh, you know, one thing to be paying attention to, and, and particularly retail sales, because it relates to consumer spending. Consumer spending makes up 70, you know, personal consumption expenditures. That's consumers that makes up roughly it's about 68 percent but just call it 70 percent of gdp 40 percent of that is retail sales 
So if retail sales are starting to decelerate, that gives you a pretty good prediction about what economic growth is going to do as we head into next year. So, you know, uh, and again, this is, you know, as we start looking into 2024, you know, trying to to push that far out in predictions is difficult. Um, you know, you know, we, we have to make some assumptions and we can do some calculations, right? We can if we assume that CPI is going to grow at two tenths of a percent a month, which is kind of a long term historical trend, and we run two tenths of a percent interest rate, you know, out for the you know through the end of 2024, that's 2.4 percent, right? So 0.2 every month, that's 2.4 percent inflation in 2024. So if you're at 3.7 now and you grow at that rate next year, you'll be at 2.4. So inflation is going to fall as we head into next year, just as the economy returns back to normal. If we get much slower growth rates in the economy, inflation will fall further. So again, see, this is, you know, there, there's some things that we can kind of calculate and say from a numbers basis, you know, this is where it should be, but that doesn't mean it has to be there. And this is, this is the whole risk of predictions, right? We just have to kind of take it as it comes, but, you know, try to apply some logic along the way. But, you know, again, kind of the whole function of the article today on the website, unintended consequences, all those charts and graphs in today's article. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Just be aware of being fixed into one view because it's always the unintended consequences of actions that tend to come back and, and, and haunt us because it's Halloween. All right, wraps up the show for the day. Be back tomorrow with Danny Ratliff for uh, Wednesday's edition of The Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest article, more, all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow.